From years of anxiety to warrior and mentor, Bradley Robinson created the Anxiety Project to help you end your anxiety naturally. Let's mold the new you and let's end anxiety together. Hello and welcome to episode 204 of the Anxiety Project podcast. I am Brad Robinson. Today, I speak to Buddy C. Buddy C is a recovering alcoholic who is now 12 years plus without alcohol. So I get to pick his brain about addiction, the struggles he faced when it came to alcohol addiction, and the steps it takes to begin the process of recovery. So if you're not addicted to alcohol, it doesn't matter because this applies to any sort of addiction in your life. Food, sex, porn, social media, you name it. So I hope that this episode brings a lot of those unconscious habits to light. That's my goal and that's my aim and I hope that this happens. Uh, Buddy C., is a businessman, father, podcaster, and a spiritual seeker since his early teens. Buddy made remarkable spiritual progress when he started questioning his belief systems when they did not help him with his alcohol addiction. Through 12-step recovery, which we'll talk about in today's episode, and open-mindedness, Buddy has been sober for over 12 years. And he wrote a fantastic book called Powerless But Not Helpless, a meditation book of 81 verses from the Tao Te Ching that can help to live an alcohol-free life and find freedom from any addictive behavior. So this is an episode you do not want to miss. I hope you enjoy and please share with someone because you just might change their life. Enjoy. Hello, buddy. Welcome to the podcast. I am so grateful that you're here with me today. I'm really excited about our conversation. I'm really excited to talk to you about Powerless But Not Helpless, your book. Before we dive in, can you just give us a brief background of yourself and why you decided to write this book? Thanks, Brad. Uh, I... I came into uh, my form of recovery from from an alcohol addiction, uh, and not the not the alcohol addiction that a lot of people have, where they start drinking in their teens, and you know, and they drink on for twenty years and have all the consequences. I really didn't start drinking alcoholically till I was in uh, my late twenties, early thirties, uh, and I used it to cope with business business stress, basically. Uh, and with time, that turned on me. At first, it helped, but I found myself uh, depending more and more on alcohol. And it got to the point I was in a business that I worked mostly from home, isolated. So I started drinking earlier and earlier in the day until I was drinking 24-7 in just no time at all. It only took a few years to go. That progression was very fast for me. Uh, and I realized I did not control my drinking anymore. It controlled me. 
and everything evolved around that. And I really didn't know what to do. I eventually got sick. I had pancreatitis, lost 90% of my pancreas. Uh, I actually told my wife to pick out my pallbearers. I had a 50-50 chance of living through that. I lived through it, obviously. But within six months, I was drinking again. And I'm like, what is this? And I could not control it. I didn't have the willpower to control it. Eventually, uh, started having some legal trouble because of the drinking. Uh, and, you know, everyone was on my case to stop. Uh, my wife, I had two small children. Uh, so I ended up uh, going to uh, AA. That was the only thing available here at the time. I live in the South. And that was the only thing available. So I started going to AA. The first meeting I went to, um, I, I saw someone who uh, drank the way that I had drank. And that's the first time I had seen someone who drank. I'd gone to some meetings with my at my psychologist's office because I'd gotten counseling for this, too. But those meetings had every kind of addiction. And it just didn't really speak to me. Uh, there was a lady beside me that was a nurse writing scripts, right? And I'm, th and I'm in the car afterward pouring me a drink. I'm thinking, that is so stupid. Why would she do that? <laughs> and I'm sitting there, you know, I had no association at all. For whatever reason, that did not speak to me. But when I went to AA, I heard a guy share that was chairing the meeting. And I, hmm, he drank the way I drank. If it works for him, maybe it will work for me. And I also added on to that. You know, I'm a lot more successful than this guy and a lot smarter, obviously. So if it, I'm sure I can figure it out, too. And that thinking I was so smart got in my way for five years that I could not get it. Uh, I was in and out. I was the guy that would come to meetings drunk that got a, a day or a week, a month. I think I got up to nine months at one time. But I could not stay sober. I could not stay sober. Uh, stress would build and I could not not drink. So finally, I got to a point of uh, suicide. And I sat down one day and I said, hmm, I said, this is either. I mean, even one time to the point of writing a note and pulling the gun away as I shot. I mean, that close that I just I was just so miserable, so absolutely miserable. Uh, and, I, and I finally just said, you know, either God is or God isn't God in a in a very uh, uh, inclusive form uh, is or isn't either this works or it doesn't. If it doesn't work, I'm out of here. I'm going to find a way. And all of a sudden it lifted. And I was like, I don't understand that. I had to come to this point for it to lift. Why did that? It's because it took that much misery for me to stay, say that I'm done. I let go. I'm quitting the trying myself. I can't either. It's done for me or I'm out of here. I just can't do this anymore. I don't have enough willpower to do this. So uh, I started um, putting together some sober time. This was in 08. Um, my sobriety date's 11, 10, 08. And as I put time together, I still noticed I lacked um, some type of uh, there was something in my this spiritual connection that I did not understand how it worked. Uh, but I was lacking something because my Christianity that I had uh, practiced since uh, 
a child did not work for this. I did not get relief. I didn't get help when I asked. And I thought that's what I was supposed to do, do the very best I could do, do all I could. And then God would do the rest for me. That's what I was taught growing up. That's what I, that's what I applied to life. I thought that was how it worked, but it did not work that way for my alcoholism at all. Uh, there seemed to be no help there. And as time went on, I said, well, let me start reading some other, um, other different books and different philosophies and different beliefs and see if there's something else there. Because I had to get very open-minded when I came into AA because I saw people that were not Christian like I was, and but yet they were getting well. And they were getting help, and I wasn't. So I said, you know, maybe my thinking is skewed a little on this. Maybe I need to be a little more open-minded than I am. So uh, I started reading. I read all the Nag Hammadi. I don't know if you know familiar with the Nag Hammadi. That's uh, the lost books uh, of the Bible that uh, were found in the 1940s in, in Egypt. And it's real thick. I mean, it's a lot of books. And I read through that. And some stuff's good. The Book of Thomas is real good. But I really didn't see what I was looking for there. Uh, and I was listening to a podcast. It was a Spiritual Awakening Radio. It's a really good podcast that, that goes into a lot of different uh, belief systems and Gnostic writings and different things. A lot of uh, Indian type, Sant those type things too. Uh, a lot about meditation. So as I did that, and I was listening to James, uh, James Beans, the guy that does that, uh, he mentioned the Tao Te Ching, and I was like, hmm, I wonder what that is. So I started Googling and looking around, and I found a story, and it's in the front of the book called The Vinegar Tasters. And basically, it's a picture, and it's a metaphorical meeting. They don't, I don't know if it really happened, but this is just the way that uh, this is a, uh, I think it's more of a metaphorical meeting between Buddha, uh, Confucius, and Lao Tzu, and Lao Tzu's the gentleman that's uh, uh, contributed with writing the Tao Te Ching. And as far as the Tao Te Ching goes, uh, in our culture, uh, most of us, a lot of us, especially in the South, were raised with a Bible in the house. You know, you'd have the, the big Bible on the coffee table, and you could look at the pictures in the back, you know, and it had all the family stuff in it. So you knew what a Bible was. Even if you never went to church, you knew what a Bible was. Well, the Tao Te Ching's the same way in the East. Uh, it, it's the most published book in the world uh, behind the Bible. The Bible's the only book that's published more than the Tao Te Ching in the world. So I had no idea of this because I'd never even heard what the Tao Te Ching was, you know. So, uh, I, so I came across this picture of the vinegar tasters. And so uh, it was common at that time to use vinegar for a lot of different purposes. So they'd have tastings and they'd have they'd flavor it different ways. So it would be a little easier to drink and that kind of thing. Uh, so Confucius tasted the vinegar and he spit it out. And his response was, you know, why would anybody want to taste such a thing? You know, Confucius teachings a lot like the book of Proverbs in the Bible, you know, just good sayings to follow in life that will, you know, give you a better life if you start doing the right thing. Uh, Buddha tasted the vinegar. And he said, you know, our life is full of suffering because we don't like the way particular things taste. We want things to be different and they're not. So we suffer because we try to make them different than they are. I said, OK, I can see that. Lao Tzu tasted the vinegar and he said, 
he smiled and he said, it's vinegar. It's how it's supposed to taste. What's all the uproar? (laughs) Acceptance, right? And in recovery, we learn from the very beginning that it's all about acceptance. Uh, Acceptance is the solution to all my problems. I mean, there's all kinds of acceptance quotes. So I said, hmm, acceptance. I said, I think that's where I need to start studying. So Mm -hmm. what what I found was that the Tao Te Ching and Taoist thought, it's not that I became a Taoist. I didn't. I actually still have most of my Christian beliefs. They're just more inclusive than they used to be. Uh, but those principles applied to all of my life and the, the examples given and all the, and it's really big uh, on you getting out of the way and letting life happen. And, you know, can you allow the mud, the water to settle, turbid water, muddy water, can you allow the water to settle so the right answer appears by itself. Things wow. like that, you know. Or the man of Tao stands on what is already moving. I said, yeah, I see that. You know, it just resonated with me so much. So we started studying the Tao Te Ching in a, in a uh, alcohol recovery group that I was in online. And it was so good that we put that into a podcast that we still produce. It's called The Tao of Our Understanding. But during the... Um, pandemic, I thought, I wonder if I could take these 81 verses that we'd studied over and over and kind of put them through a lens of my recovery and see if see if I if they speak to me in a way that might help others. So I sat down and started writing and I went through all 81 verses in I think about 11 days and just wrote them all. I mean, it was just incredible what was coming out. And uh, then we edited and went through the process, got got an artist that uh, I know to provide us some pictures. A friend of mine, Don M., uh, he actually has a podcast called The Boiled Owl that's, uh, uh, that he's done in the past. So we, we put all this together, and that's where we are. Buddy, that, that's an incredible story. I mean, I think I want to rewind a little bit and go back to the cycle of your alcohol addiction, because um, those who are listening, first of all, I know Buddy's story has connected with you because it's unbelievable. Second, you might be going through an addiction and not even know it. And so the cycle of addiction, it starts with pain. So Buddy, looking back on your addiction, where do you think that pain came from? Do you think you you accumulated it over time, or where was there something you were trying to fill within you, a void, uh, a space, with that alcohol was giving you, or do you think the alcohol was repressing something that you didn't want to confront? Uh, how do you view that part of your life, the pain part, when you were drinking? Uh for me, Brad, that's a great question. I, I think it has a basis in fear. For me, every, if you want to say defect, every addiction, every, it, everything in my life that's not a positive has a basis in fear if I look at it close enough. For example, anger is not a primary emotion. It's a secondary. There's something causing you to be angry. Most of the time I was angry because I was afraid. You know, and so the same thing with the the alcohol was just a substitute for me 
not being able to accept the moment as it was. Because I wanted things to be different, so I would drink so I felt different. It's really no different than acceptance. It's the it's the it's the anti-acceptance, really. When you think about it, your addiction for me, and I only speak to my own experience, for my in my experience, the addiction takes me out of the moment. It, it keeps me from having to see what's going on right now. Even if it's just for a second or all day, it doesn't matter. It takes me out of the moment. And what I've learned in recovery is that through acceptance, and acceptance doesn't mean approval. Acceptance means uh, accepting the moment for what it is right now as it is in this moment. If I can do that, then I can see if there's anything to change or not. I can't see what needs changing until I accept it as it is. I keep trying to change things I can't change, and then it just makes the whole cycle worse and worse. So, yeah, for me, uh, it was fear that was behind that, and then the misery just added more misery, and it just compounded. So whether it chicken or the egg, I don't know. But I do know that it was relief for me when I found alcohol because I could not tolerate the moment. And that's exactly what it did for me. When I was at my lowest point with anxiety, I would grab onto anything around me that could provide me with the numbing of my pain. So I'd grab onto relationships for reassurance, Google. I would grab onto a weed, even alcohol, just to numb that. And then at my lowest point, what happened was I had to come to that realization that everything around me, it was not working. Like my map of the world was so insufficient. These crutches were actually not giving, getting me the answers I needed. I, I needed to know the answers about my health because I was so obsessed over, do I have this disease? Do I have that disease because of my health anxiety? And I was like, man, I need to reach outside of what I know and I need to find somebody who I didn't even have that definition. I didn't even know there were people out there who went through the same thing, right? Like out of desperation, buddy, like I went online and I found somebody, a mentor who went through the same thing I went through. And then when you said that about your addiction, like I remember you said that you, you met somebody and they were speaking your language. Talk to me about that. Like, what happened when you saw somebody who who was in the same boat and then overcame it, or or over in the process of overcoming it? What happened there? What was clicking for you? Well, that was my first hope that it could be. Hope. Then I I started listening to what they were doing, and I was told to do what they did. So um, they got a sponsor. So I got a sponsor. Uh, and then I went through the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, the 12 steps, which what I found in the 12 steps was that they f- really freed me from me. Because the problem was I was so full of fear that I would lose something that I had or not get something that I needed, think I needed, uh, that I could not function. So it got rid of all those fears. And I realized that all my resentment, all my anger Everything was out of fear. Everything was fear. So the steps helped me to do that and give me a a way of life that was more of a spiritual basis that what I've learned over time is that for me, 
everything seems to be connected like one big organism. And I have grown to believe, if you believe in a God, uh, that that's just love. Everything that changes in my life is because I choose to think of you instead of me. I choose to love. I choose to. And, and all the practices, as they get further up the mountain, they might look much different at the bottom when you're starting. But as you get further up the mountain, they all start looking the same. And so I started seeing this. I started studying Zen, uh, Zen Buddhism a few years ago. And the teachers said the same thing, that when uh, when self falls away, all that's left is compassion. I'm like, I see that. And the thing I learned in recovery that was totally different, I had to flip my idea of belief totally around. Uh, because before recovery, I thought that you... For me, I thought that I had a set of beliefs that I chose to be real. I practiced those beliefs. Then my life changed. But what I found out in recovery was it was the flip that I take the action. And then after I take the action, then I start changing. So you take the action first, not the belief. And I'll give you an example of that. Uh, anyone that's familiar with the big book, there's a there's a quote on page 552 that talks about resentment. It says that uh, if if you have a resentment, that if you will pray for the person to have what you want for two weeks, that you'll be free. You pray it for them, even if you don't mean it. And it's just empty words. You do it anyway. So you take the action first, even if you don't believe it. You do it anyway. And as you do it, then you start changing. So I learned that. And then uh, when, when you come into when I came into AA uh, there in working with others in the big book, it talks about that there's nothing that works so much to uh, to give you uh, immunity against a drink as working with another alcoholic. I'm like, well, I'll do that whenever I've got this figured out. Right. <laughs> Whenever I graduate, which never happens. But, you know, but no, it was at first that you, you know, of course, you don't go out and talk to a drunk when you're first starting that, you know, you might drink yourself. You have somebody with you or or you help or you're friendly in a meeting. You find ways or ways present themselves for you to be of service. So I thought, hmm, that's totally different than what I've ever. What do I have to give someone if I've been sober a week? It looks like they would want to hear from the, you know, the guy that's been sober 20, 30 years. But what I realized was the thing that helps people is not intellectual understanding. It's the experience that comes from the heart. So when you share your experience, that's what changes people. That's what gives them something, the hope gives them something to latch on to. So my prayer had to change from God help me to God who can I help. And once I started making that shift in life, I started realizing I already had everything I needed. There wasn't nothing I needed. I was already given it all. I just couldn't see it. I wasn't aware of it. It's like I was sleepwalking. Yeah, I just want everybody to rewind that part and play it back the last few minutes because that was so powerful. Uh, buddy, the first part of the addiction cycle pain the next well there's a five-point guide to the cycle of addiction one is pain 
and then you're using an addictive agent like alcohol, food, sex, dependent relationships to soothe. So we talked about that to numb that fear. Um, then the third one is the temporary anesthesia or the distraction. You get caught up in it and then it's sort of, you can look at it like repressing all of your fears and uh, your inadequacies that you don't want to confront, right? Like you might even call it the shadow parts of yourself. Um, the fourth is the consequences. So, um, buddy, we talked about that already. Talk to me about the consequences of alcohol and were these consequences the catalyst for the change? Did you experience so much of these consequences that it was like, okay, I, I got to change my map. I got to look elsewhere because I'm in this deep hole. It was really more Brad. Uh, for me, it was the, the inner miserableness that I was so miserable. Yes, there were consequences, but I did not stop drinking because of the consequences. I stopped drinking because within I was so miserable. At first, I was I could see it coming. You know, I could see the train wreck coming. I did not lose uh, a marriage. I did not lose uh, my children. I didn't lose a business due to alcohol. None of that stuff. Uh, I did get one DUI many years ago when I was first starting this path, but uh, it and it was in a neighboring county, so it brought it to my attention in the county where all of my business was in. Never even knew it happened, so I was able to keep, which was which was just a blessing in disguise because that showed me I needed to pay attention to this and this miserableness that I was feeling I needed to deal with. So it was really more the because I didn't have the willpower to stop. Uh, so it, it was a little different for me in that regard. I, I could not gather. I, I mean, I tried. I just could not do it. So I, I think that and we, we in AA, we say a little different. Uh, if someone's not ready to stop, maybe they need to drink some more because it's actually the alcohol itself that drives them into recovery. It's mm -hmm. not keeping it away from them. It's letting them drink more. And it not consequences for me. And I've not seen hardly anyone come into AA that consequences were the reason they were there. It was because alcohol quit working for them and they were just absolutely miserable. Mm, I love that. Uh, on my podcast, I talk a lot about my porn addiction. I was 12 years, buddy, of watching pornography. And I didn't know it was a problem because back then when I first started it, for me, I looked on Google because I felt this shame and guilt for watching it. And I was a young boy, right? I didn't know what was happening. I went on Google. Oh, it's perfectly normal to watch porn and do this. And it's like, that gave me this like, okay, right? Like within within me, oh, I'm going to keep doing it. It makes me feel good and so forth. Then 12 years later, I stumbled upon that person like on YouTube, buddy, of like, hey, I, I've, I went a year porn free and this is what my, happened to my life type of thing. And I'm like, interesting, I clicked on it. And it, this video was like an immediate paradigm shift for me because I then saw that you could live life without this thing. And that made me go, I go every day with this thing. There's a life outside of that. And I was like, that was the beginning. But to continue on your point of the misery, because I started to go one day, two days without porn, I noticed that I couldn't live without it. 
that's when you know it's an addiction is you you try and stop but then you can't stop and that's when i thought uh oh this thing has a control over me and i don't have any control over what is going on here and so i needed to start to attach a lot of pain to why porn is something i should quit and that was a continual process. I'm the guy, buddy. Like, I, it takes me a year to quit something. Like, I'm not the guy who says, okay, I'm done with this and it that's it. And rarely someone is, right? Right. Me neither. Me neither. Yeah. So, so it's like, for me, it's like a, a month relapse, two months relapse, a week relapse. It's like, but as, as long as you're moving towards something... I mean, the relapse is a great indicator of where you don't want to be, right? So for you, buddy, like when you, I, I don't, I haven't asked you this question. First, first question is, did you relapse? Second, I think you already answered that actually. But in second, uh, the relapse, do you feel like it was an indicator for you uh, of where you don't want to be because of that horrible feeling when you relapse, you kind of say to yourself, oh man, I, I gave in. Um, I don't feel good because I relapsed. I think it's a great orientation mechanism of this is where I don't want to be. Yeah, it very much is. Uh, and we have in AA, we have uh, most groups give out chips for time and sobriety. You come one month, some do every month up to a year, and then you have an annual year chip that you get. So then you've got to start the chips all over again. Then you've got to, you know, so you're kind of got some accountability in front of the, the people. And I finally got to where I didn't pick up chips anymore. Cause I said, you know, I, I'll give you all a sobriety date when I think it's firm. So for the first year on my last year, I did not pick up any chips until I got my one year because I was just so embarrassed that I could not do that. I mean, I was a successful business guy, had the lake house and the suburban and the, the stuff, you know, but I could not stop drinking. I just couldn't do it. Um, yeah, I think it, and the thing that's different in AA than anything else that I had found before was that I always take the focus off of me and put it on helping someone else. So what we learned, uh, the 12th step talks about learning to practice this in everything. So it's not about stop. We find out alcohol is a symptom of the problem. Alcohol is not the real problem. The real problem is me. So and the way I'm uh, looking at life. So what I have to do is first I get rid of the alcohol. Then we start working on me. And I found even today I want to escape sometime. If I get out on the wave runner and just cut donuts and play, Sometimes it's just because I want relief from the day. And other times I can say, I'll get on my motorcycle and hit the curbies really harder than I should. It's because I want that adrenaline and I've stopped doing that. And I thought, wait a minute, this is just an escape for me because I'm not happy with something going on right now. I want it to be different. So it's a lifelong process, Brad, of, of so much more than just what addiction got us here. It's learning to practice this in all of our affairs. Uh, and, and we have a practice in AA that past the alcohol, if you're having an issue with anything, there's four things that you do. And if for anyone who's familiar with AA, this is on page 84 in the big book, that uh, you ask God to remove it immediately. You tell someone, you make an amend if you need to. You tell someone about it. And then you turn your thoughts to someone you can help. 
So you do those four things. So you ask it to be removed. If you don't believe in God, you just, I just, what I do is I would say, you know, I just ask what is reality or whatever. I just ask that this be removed in my life. If there's any help, I want it with this. Uh, and then if I've made a, uh, if, if I've had an issue, you know, if I've made a harm that I need to amend, I go ahead and do that. Uh, I tell someone about it. I have sponsees that just text me. They'll text me anger page 84 because they're telling me I don't need to call them back. I know what they're doing. And then they they have someone that they pray for at that time that in that moment that's having a problem with anger. If it's anger is the issue. And then I say, okay, who are you praying for? And then I say, okay, what are you afraid of? Why are you angry? And that kind of a thing. So you dig down to it. And then when you see what it is, my son didn't go to college. And he was star student. I mean, he was just incredibly smart. He wanted to drink and drug instead. And so I was very angry about him not going to college. And I was talking to my sponsor about this. I said, as much as I surrender to this anger, I can't get over it. I don't know what I'm doing wrong. As much as I do what tools I've been taught, I can't get past this. And so we've got to talking about it. Come to find out the anger wasn't over him missing an opportunity. The anger was over him embarrassing me. <laughs> he was embarrassing me by not going to college, right? Uh, so once I said, oh, it's the embarrassment. Oh, okay. I surrender this embarrassment. You know, and I, I just sat with that for a while. And I was never angry with him about college again. Because well, I shined some light on what was really happening. That's the kind of things that I've learned in recovery that have nothing to do with it being alcohol. Alcohol is only mentioned the first step and the 12th step. It's only mentioned twice in the steps. If it was about mm -hmm. alcohol, it would be all the way through. It's not. It's about us. And the 12th mm -hmm. step is about helping someone. It's not about your addiction to alcohol. The only thing it says about the alcohol addiction is in the very first step. And it just says, you can't fix it. You're going to mm -hmm. have to surrender. Buddy, can you please talk to me a, a little bit more about surrendering? How does one surrender? How does one begin to practice surrendering? Because I love uh, learning about this. And if you can shine some more light on that, I'd really appreciate it. There's a good book that I would get on surrender. It's David Hawkins, Letting Go, The Pathway of Surrender. I don't know if you're familiar with this book. I have it. Yeah, oh, it's great for an audible too. the audible on this is very easy to listen to. But this really is and it's not a recovery book. But uh, Dr. Hawkins talks about how he learned to let go through his life. And so this book just goes through that process. Um, first thing with surrender, I have to quit fighting. You know, if you surrender, if you're if you're a soldier and you're um, you're defeated, you lay down all of your weapons. You have nothing left to fight with. You do not fight anymore. You let go of the fight. So that is surrender. I was never taught that. I was always taught that you double down and work harder and do better. That's All of life was that. It was not surrender in any form or fashion. So when I, uh, I started learning to surrender, and part of that's letting go of what I do is I ask that someone be put in my path to help and get the focus off of helping me. One thing I, I like to think of with that is, uh, let's say you've got the proverbial wall to get over. 
whatever the issue is that you're dealing with. And you go up to the wall and say, okay, I need to get past this. Instead of trying to get past it yourself, you say, okay, who can I help get over this wall? And someone's put in my path that I can help. And I help them over the wall. And, and then I find myself on the other side. Did they pull me over? Did I walk through? Did I go on? I have no idea. But all of a sudden, I find that it's no longer a problem for me anymore. That seems to be the way it works and everything. And that sounds so simple, but that is so difficult. That is so difficult to do in practice. Uh, but I always start there. I always start with getting the focus off of me and off of my issue and helping someone else with theirs. And I have a great, if I can share it, this is from yeah. the Daily Reflections, which is a daily devotional AA book. When I listened to your podcast, it reminded me, and this is one of my favorite uh, devotions. It's from May 9th, and it's called Walking Through Fear. And notice this has nothing to do with alcohol at all. Uh, and the quote is, if we still cling to something, we will not let go. We ask God to help us be willing. And what you can do there, if you don't have a God belief, you can say, I help, uh, I ask love to help me be willing. And mm -hmm. love works just as well. When I had taken my fifth step, which is where you share your uh, all of your fears and your resentments and all those things uh, with your sponsor, that's the fifth step. I became aware that all of my defects of character stemmed from my need to feel secure and loved. To use my will alone to work on them would have been trying obsessively to solve the problem. In the sixth step, I intensified the action. That's where we start asking God to remove these defects of character. <clears throat> uh, in the sixth step, uh, I intensified the action I had taken in the first three steps, meditating on the step by saying it over and over, going to meetings, following my sponsor's suggestions, reading and searching within myself. During the first three years of sobriety, I had a fear of entering an elevator alone. One day I decided I must walk through this fear. I asked for God's help, entered the elevator, and there in the corner was a lady crying. She said that since her husband had died, she, had, she was deathly afraid of elevators. I forgot my fear and comforted her. This spiritual experience helped me to see how willingness was the key to working the rest of the 12 steps in recovery. So... That really just shows, uh, it's and that's a true story. It seems like that's made up, but that is a true story. And I have seen things happen in recovery that are just so much more than coincidences. Um, that they're just, you would not believe that they happened the way that they happened. Had a guy come to a meeting. Uh, it's a meeting I didn't go to very often, maybe once every two, three weeks. It was a five, six day a week meeting. Actually, I wasn't even supposed to go there that day. I was supposed to go to another town. And I was meeting with a sponsor. He wanted to meet up there, so we did. And after the meeting, a guy said, Buddy gave me his card three years ago. And he was sitting right there because you have a tendency to sit in the same seats, no matter if you don't come that often. And uh, he said, I've come back now, and I'm ready, ready to get sober. I've been staring at his card for three years. And I said, so, and I went up to him. I said, so how many meetings did you go to three years ago? He said, one. One noon meeting, which I'd never go to hardly. And I said, so how many did you come to this time? He said, one. 
I said, you found me here at both of those? He said, yeah. And uh, he's sober today. I think he just celebrated four years. I was his sponsor for a number of years. So things like that just happened. I had a guy that was ready to do his amends. Uh, and he hadn't spoke to his ex-wife in five years. And he said, I don't know what I'm going to do. I said, well, just tell your higher power that you're ready and that you're willing. And that when a way is made, you'll do it. Has, have not talked to her in five years. Two hours later, he texted me. He said, you're not going to believe this. I said, why? He said, she texted me and said that she had some things of my father's that she found in the attic and wanted to know if I wanted them. I said, there you go. Five years have not spoke same day that we got his amends ready for his eighth and ninth step. So, I mean, just things like that happen that are just so much more than coincidence. How could it be? Uh, so, um, and, and those are things that happen not because of us, but in spite of us many times, because I found solutions to, to uh, situations in life come from uh, more of me getting out of the way than from anything that I do personally to make the solution happen. And mm -hmm. I'm so, I used to just be in angst the whole time when, when the whole situation was over. If I look back, I said, you know, I really had nothing to do with how that worked out. I don't know if you've experienced that, but I've experienced that over and over and over again. My part's to be willing. And if I'm willing, uh, situations just show themselves for me. It's, it's just incredible. Absolutely. Buddy, if someone to approach you and you're getting your coffee, they're getting their coffee and they recognize you and they, they ask you, where do I start? Where do I start? I'm struggling with, I can't seem to have control over this addiction. Where do I go from here? What are the starting steps? What can I do? Well, for me, I would suggest finding or helping them find a group that has a similar addiction. There can't be any addictions left that don't have groups now. Of sometimes, well, I remember listening to your story and you started having success when you found someone uh, and that's the thing you find in groups many times. Uh, you find other people that are recovering from whatever your issue is. And so uh, with that, then you get hope you can recover and you can, you can follow the same program that they did, see if that works for you. But there's so many different approaches now to addiction that there's no reason not to seek out others. Because one thing I found in recovery is that I cannot do this alone. I can't do my recovery alone. I have to I have to have you as little as I really want you involved because I want to be able to do it by myself. I can't. I can't. And even today, uh, I have I go to meetings, not not daily, but I go to meetings at least weekly. I meet with sponsees. Uh, I have a sponsor. I will always have those things, I believe, uh, because that's what works for me. Uh, but that's what I that's what I would suggest and help them find a group. Uh, that's dealing with the same addiction that they have. I just want everybody to share this podcast with uh, someone you know who's struggling or anybody anybody around you because we all have our addictions. We all are suffering from some sort of addiction, whether they're small or big. I actually don't even like that saying that, smaller. We all have something that we just can't seem to control. And... And please share it with somebody because you just might change their life. I'm so grateful to have you on the show, buddy. It's been such an enlightening conversation. 
And uh, is there anything else you, that you would like to share before we conclude? Just real quickly, let me share a verse from the book. Please. Oh, also, I can, uh, I'm happy if you go to buddyc.org uh, and send me a message. I'll be happy to send you the PDF of the book if it's something that you want. You can buy the book on Amazon if you, and you can see uh, in uh, at buddyc.org, you can see several uh, verses there so that you can see if it's something that speaks to you or not. Uh, this is verse 71. Sick of being sick. Knowing we do not know is the highest knowledge. Thinking we know is an illness. We unlearn by working through the pain of living life our way. The sage meets no difficulty because he has surrendered fully to the difficulty. Becoming sick of being sick, the doorway of surrender becomes visible. This is one of the great secrets. So that's just a taste of, I, I, I read some of these and I'm like, did I really pin this? I mean, it's incredible some of the, some of the words that I hear. But uh, there's a lot of stuff there. So check it out at buddyc.org. And if it speaks to you and can help you, uh, please put it to use. Uh, if, like I said, if you'd like a PDF of the book, anyone's welcome to post a PDF, share it anywhere that they want. Just go to buddyc.org and send me a message. I love that. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. And I'm grateful that uh, we got to meet today and have this conversation. Thanks, Brad. Me too. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Brad's powerful anxiety recovery program is now available at unpluganxiety.com. The Anxiety Project program is downloadable and puts the power of anxiety recovery in your own hands. Visit unpluganxiety.com for more details. Recovery starts now.